0: Max Lucado wrote a, in one of his books called Six Hours One Friday, he wrote this, describing some people's views about Jesus. And as I read this, I want you to kind of start thinking, hmm, yeah, that's kind of me. Or, really? People believe that? Listen to these words and see if it rings true for you. For some, Jesus is a lucky charm, the rabbit's foot redeemer, pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall. You can stick it, to your, stick it in your wallet for insurance. You can frame him, dangle him from your rearview mirror, or glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the redeemer. Need, need help on a quiz? Pull out your rabbit's foot. No need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. Happy St. Patrick's Day, by the way. For many, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New jobs, pink Cadillacs, new and improved spouses. Your wish, his command. And what's more, He's convenient, he conveniently re enters the lamp when you don't want him around. For others, Jesus is a, and this is going to be an old reference, so I apologize in advance, he's a Monty Hall Redeemer. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal. For 52 year, Sundays a year, I'll put on a costume, a suit, a coat, a tie, hat, and hose. I'll endure a sermon you throw at me. In exchange, you give me the grace behind pearly gate number three. The rabbit's foot redeemer, the Aladdin's lamp redeemer, the Monty Hall redeemer. Few demands, no challenges, no need for sacrifice, no need for commitment. Sightless and heartless redeemers Redeemers without power. That's not the Redeemer of the New Testament. So who is this Jesus that we sing to? Who is this Jesus that we give our tithes and offerings towards his mission? Who who is this Jesus? Who is it that we give tirelessly and sometimes tiredly of our time and our talents? Who is this Jesus? Do you see him as your rabbit's foot, your Aladdin's lamp, or your Monty Hall? Or do you echo what, how Peter responded when Jesus asked him, Who do the people say I am? The disciples responded in Mark chapter 8. John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. But then Jesus got really pointed And looked at them and said, but who do you say I am? And Peter comes out with this this statement, you are the Christ. Who do you say he is? This morning, we are going to be confronted with this question of who is this Christ? And the question's like, is what you are living for worth what he died for? Or the question of, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Those are some of the questions we are going to be working through. Let's hear from God, from His Holy Word. Please stand for the reading from Luke chapter 23. We are going to start at verse 32 and read through verse 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to them, to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Who do you say He is? Is what you are living for worth what He died for? And what are you going to do with this, Jesus? So on the cross, God, the immortal, the great I Am, who came to us in the flesh, is now dying. It was a gruesome scene, one that our movies today probably adequately could not ever really portray the gruesomeness, the pain. Yes, Mel Gibson tried his best, but if you were there in real time, there would be nothing like it. And as he was dying, he had some words that we ought to listen to. Last week, we learned the first thing that Jesus said to the people who were crucifying him, these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. They have no clue. So even in the middle of Jesus being unjustly, brutally being murdered, he was finding, we find him praying these words, Father, forgive them. Father, would you forgive them? And Jesus, in the midst of his pain, his agony, this injustice, he was pouring out forgiveness. And because of this, forgiveness we have received through Christ. We, as the people of God, his children, his body, we are able to forgive, even when people do not deserve it. So today we come to the, the second thing that Jesus says on the cross. He not only forgave those who were crucifying him, he also took a moment to forgive a criminal, a criminal who was hanging next to him. So God, through his, his love and his forgiveness, is able to forgive even the worst of sinners in their last breathing moments of life. And this is, my friends, a beautiful picture of God's grace. undeserved unmerited grace. We see that two of the seven statements of Jesus from the cross deal specifically with this subject of forgiveness. There are hundreds of principles that Jesus taught about during His his earthly ministry, right? We can go back to the Sermon on the Mount and go, oh, that is wonderful to be taught about. There's even Jesus taught about marriage. We, we see all kinds of things that he, he taught about. But, in that moment, as he was dying, he spent two of the seven things on this issue of forgiveness. God knows how difficult it is, how much of a struggle it is for us to forgive. And I know some of your stories well enough that this is a topic that you go, yeah, mm mm-hmm, for those people. The reality is, it's for you. Many of you struggle with this issue of forgiveness where you say, yeah, but you have no clue, Paul, The betrayal that I have been through. You have no clue the pain that I have experienced. And you know what? I can harbor it as long as I want to or until they come to me and ask for forgiveness. But the reality is that is not what gospel forgiveness looks like. That's not what it looks like for a believer in Jesus Christ to say I'm going to hold on to it as long as I want to because you know what? I'm entitled to that much gospel forgiveness is free it looks crazy in this world and god knows how much we struggle with it he knows how difficult it is for us to forgive people who have wronged us he knows how difficult it is in fact he's been in those shoes he knows how difficult it is for, uh, for a lot of us to believe that even God, are you capable of forgiving me? Do you know what I have done? Man, there is a dark, indelible blot of sin in my life that no matter how hard I work, the shame and the guilt and the pain of my sin is still there. And God, God, are you really able to forgive me for that? And that is why Jesus spent at least two sentences, sayings, saying, hey, in my last breathing moments, We need to talk about forgiveness. So there's two men. One on the right and one on the left who is hanging there with Jesus. The one on the left had this moment with Jesus. Both of these guys had an interaction back and forth with Him. And the one on the left, was hanging there. His body was broken. He was bloody. He was dying. He was in pain. And with just a few minutes left in his life, he hurled abuse. He, he rejected Jesus in that moment. He blasphemed him all the way to his last dying breath. He rejected the only hope that he had in this world. The one Just next to him was the one who could bring life and hope and healing. The guy on the right was also a criminal. He encountered Jesus too, but we see something very different. He confessed his sin and he cried out for mercy. Jesus forgave him and he offered him eternal life right there on the spot. Did did you pick that up in verse 39? This guy was in the exact position as Jesus with nails in his hands and his feet. The guy on the left looked over at Jesus and he he hurled abuse at him. The Greek word there is the word for blasphemed, meaning hurled, hatred, and he spewed venom, defiling God. Our translation that we have is saying that he railed abuse. It was just like non-stop. Just going at him. We only have a small little vignette here. But more than likely, in those moments, as that man was there next to Jesus, he just railed. He railed abuse. And some of you have felt that, haven't you? Where that person... Their, their words are just venomous. They're poison. They, they, it just breaks you down to the core and it just seems to non-stop just spewing from their lips and you go, how cold, how dark, how black is your heart? He yelled at Jesus, I thought you were the Christ. This word was, that he used was, I thought you were the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And all the Jews, Jewish people there knew that a Messiah, a promised one was coming. Understand, he was not making a statement of faith here. I thought you were the Messiah was like, not like, oh, I thought you were the Messiah. No, he did not believe that Jesus was the, the Messiah, the, the, the anointed one of God. The tone in the original language was bitingly sarcastic and totally demeaning save yourself and us he cried this guy actually asked Jesus to save him both of these cried out to Jesus to save him however the condition of their hearts were totally different when this guy cried out to Jesus to save him there was no brokenness. There was no humility in his heart. There was no repentance over his sin. He just saw Jesus as some guy he could manipulate and get him off of the cross. He was looking to Jesus as his lucky rabbit foot, his Monty Hall, his Aladdin's lap, lamp. And how did Jesus respond to him? Silence. There was nothing. Scripture didn't even point out that he looked at him. This guy, if you will, had the winning lottery ticket in his hand. He was dying, but was being crucified next to the guy who created the wood that he was nailed to. Who created the air that was filling his lungs for his last few breaths. The guy knew Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And if there was anybody in the world who should take him up on this. Who ought to be open to the gospel. It ought to be this guy. But he wasn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Bible actually says that there are there are going to be people who have this response to Jesus. No matter what their situation might be, there are two kinds of people in this world. Hear that. As Christians, we view people that there are two kinds of people in this world. First, there are those who are perishing. The the word of the cross is going to be absolute foolishness, stupidity. The Greek word here is actually moronis which we get our word moron. It's moronic. It's stupid. These people are going to hear the message that God created you, that you've sinned. So Jesus came in the flesh. He lived the perfect life. He died the death that you so deserved. He paid your penalty. He absorbed the wrath of God for us so that if you would just trust in Him, you can have life they're going to hear this message this good news and they're going to say you have got to be a freaking idiot to believe that you, you've got to be a moron to believe you've got to be weak to believe that that is absolutely ludicrous foolishness it's stupid it shouldn't shock us when a guy is dying and even in his last breath he still does not cry out for mercy It shouldn't shock us when people don't understand from like last week's message, a woman who had received unmerited grace, unmerited favor, and forgiveness from God is able to offer the same thing for people who murdered, murdered her husband. It's foolishness. It's crazy. But there's a second kind of people that live in this world. It's the people who are being saved. When these people encounter the message of the cross, the power of God comes in. It renews them. It it, it makes their lives also in their the All the shutters of their eyes and their hearts fall off. And God says, I am making you into a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Look at what is going on. When we hear the message of the cross, the power of God begins to work in us. We're able to grasp it, we're able to believe it. We can't believe that this is happening. It's not because we're smarter, it's not because we're godlier. It's because of the power of God working within us. The scripture tells us that at one point in Jesus' ministry, thousands of people were following him. Why? Because he was feeding them. He was healing them. He was doing these miraculous signs. And of course, if that would really be happening today, people would go, let's go. We went... We wouldn't have room in here. People go, are you serious? Miraculously, he's taking bread, he's breaking it, he's feeding 5,000 people with some bread and a few fish? And finally, Jesus stopped and he said, hey, quit following me because I'm feeding you and healing you. Unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can have no part of me. they responded what you want us to do what and the whole crowd left except for the 12 disciples and they were standing there with their mouths wide open probably in that moment going you had it going here jesus do you see we got a mega church going their mouths dropped and jesus looked at them and just said do you want to leave me too? And Peter responded, where am I to go? You alone have the words of life. I pray that those of you who are in Christ have that same kind of heart of, man, you have life. You've given me life. Where else am I supposed to go but to you, Jesus? Jesus? You've saved me, you've redeemed me, you've healed me, you're restoring me. You alone have the words of life. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, who are being made whole, being renewed in your mind, being renewed in your heart, it is the power of God. And this is exactly what is going on in this story with these thieves. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since we are under the same judgment of sentence of condemnation? And indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing. He's done nothing. So, in other words, these criminals on the right and on the left were both in the exact same position. They were there because they were under... A good sentence. Justice had been brought about. And now they were being executed because of what they had done. But the guy on the right, he, he was broken. He was bloody. He was dying with only a few minutes to live. But his response was radically different than the guy on the left. The condition of his heart was night and day different. First, you notice that he asked the other criminal, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? This reveals that in his heart, there was a a holy understanding of this holy God. For people being saved, there's there's going to be a, a godly, holy, righteous fear and an amazement of this God. It's one of the evidences of being saved. John Piper, in one of his his sermons, considers the thief on the left like an ant. He said this. I love this, this quote. It's even more fitting that sinful creatures bow before God in holy fear, instead of railing against God as if a rebel ant should kick the foothills of Mount Everest and demand that it flatten out so an ant can walk across. But that's what is happening with people who are perishing. They have no fear of God in their heart and they demand him to do what they want. God, fix my marriage. God, fix this injustice. They make these demands and the guy on the right was saying, dude, shut up. Shut up! You you don't fear God, do you? We indeed justly, for we are we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Listen, he, he said, he was a sinner, and this is what people who are being saved do. They they make a confession. They understand that they have fallen short of the glory of God and they deserve the cross. They deserve wrath. They confess it. They understand that they should be an ember in the pit of hell because they deserve it. They understand that clearly. But he said, but this guy has done no wrong. So first, he has this fear in his heart of God. but second, And second, he confesses that, listen, I'm a sinner. But third, he confessed that Jesus is not like us. He's not a sinner. People who are being saved know that the only hope that they have for righteousness, for holiness, is not found in what they have done. But it's found in the righteousness of God another my only hope is not found in my good deeds in me being a pastor me being a great dad me raising my kids in the church it has nothing to do with it the only hope that i have for righteousness is based on the righteousness of christ alone christ alone cornerstone weak made strong In the Savior's love. And that man, after those confessions, is having a holy fear of God, confessing that he's a sinner, and saying, man, he is not like us. He is perfect. He said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? The last thing this man did with his dying breath was say, he says, I am throwing you throwing myself on the mercy of God. He admitted that Jesus was the only hope that he had. And he asked, would you just remember me? And what was Jesus' response? Unlike his, the first criminal who Jesus seemed to completely ignore Jesus lifted up his head and said one of the seven sayings he said on the cross. And if he could have reached out, he would have grabbed hold and said, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I I would be a blubbering mess at that moment if my heart understood. The man cried out for Jesus to save him, and what did Jesus do? Jesus saved him. Remember I said that the reason God spent two of the seven sayings on the cross on on forgiveness is because God knows how hard it is for us to forgive people but it's also because he knows how hard it is for a lot of us to believe that God could actually forgive us. There's a lot of us who have the hardest time wrapping our minds around God just wiping a person's slate free. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. There's probably a number in this room who, who may not be followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason... You're not, isn't just because you don't believe in God, but because you don't believe God could actually forgive someone like you. There's probably a number of us in this room who are believers, who are, who are Christ followers, but right now you are so mired up in your sin, in your junk, in your pain, in your sweet sins. That you're in this place where you think, God might be done with me. I've done it again. I've done it again. Is he done with me now? We don't think that God can offer forgiveness to a person who keeps failing like we do. So if there's a story in the Bible, if there's any story in the Bible that teaches us our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's not by any works that anybody should boast, and it's a gift of God. It is this story. This guy had absolutely no time to hop down off of the cross and to go be obedient to Jesus. He couldn't even do it. He was stuck. He had no time to, to go live another 50 years of radically following Jesus for the sake of the gospel. He could not go to the other side of the world to be a missionary and just faithfully follow Jesus, He to, to give back to Jesus. With his dying breath, he confessed he was a sinner and Jesus, and Jesus was not going, really? You? A criminal? No, instead, mercy was given. And mercy came like a flood into this guy's heart. Your salvation is not based on anything that you have done. It is a gift of God. Truly, I say To you. In other words. I raise my right hand. And I promise. This is true. 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 Today. Today. Right now. You will be with me. In paradise. And I want you to think about the stunningness. Of just that phrase. Not just the. This is absolutely true. And not just the with me in paradise, but the today, with me. You're you're going to be with me in paradise. Don't just too quickly float over that. Think about that that thief's first moments in heaven. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Remember that he died, perhaps an hour or two before the thief talking about Jesus. And during that time, the eternal glory flamed through the underworld and was flashing through the, the gates of paradise just when the pardoned thief was entering the eternal world. Who is this that entereth the pearl gate at the same moment as the king of glory? Who is this favored companion of the Redeemer? Is it some honored martyr? Is it a faithful apostle? Is is it a patriarch like Abraham or a prince like David? It is none of these. Behold, and be amazed at sovereign grace. He that goeth in at the gate of paradise with the king of glory is a thief. Who was saved in the article of death? He is saved in no inferior way and received into bliss in no secondary style. Verily, there are last which shall be first. <laughs> Hence, I would have you notice the condescension of our Lord's choice. The comrade, of the Lord's. Lord of glory, for whom the cherub turn aside his sword of fire is no great one, but a newly converted malefactor. And why? I think the Savior took him with him as a specimen. (laughs) I love this. As a specimen of what he meant to do. He seemed to, be to say to all the heavenly powers, I bring a sinner with me. He is a sample of the rest. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Is what you are living for what Christ died for. What are you going to do with this Jesus? I don't know when this life is going to come to a sudden halt. But I do know that we are all part of that ultimate statistic. Every one of us. Death is going to come knocking at an inopportune time for someone here in this room. He's going to come knocking at an inopportune time. And when death comes knocking, we have no choice but to answer that door. The only thing that is going to matter when we answer that door is, what did you do with Christ? That's the only thing that is going to matter. It's not, how are my wife, how is my kids, how is my husband, do I got my things in order? The only thing that's going to matter in that moment is what have you done with Christ? Listen, friends, we are vile before God. You say one lie, you are a liar. You steal one thing, and you are a You're a thief. You know, a rapist doesn't need to rape 10 people before he is a rapist. And once we recognize that we are vile and disgusting and our hearts are black with sin and there is no access to God whatsoever, then, then and only then, can we look to Him who saves And who is that one? Jesus Christ. So my questions are, will you reject Jesus with your words or your life? Even to your dying breath, will you reject Him? Or will you throw yourself on the mercy of God? You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you might want him to do some good stuff. But if you reject him with your mouth and your life, when you die, Jesus will respond to you exactly like he responded to the thief on the left. He will say, nothing. Or, I don't know you. But if you're here today and you're afraid of this, Remember the guy on the right. If there is breath in your lungs and life in your body, you can cry out to Jesus. And it does not matter what you have done in the past, what you're doing right now or gonna do tomorrow, this Savior is bigger than that. Tell Him, tell Him, Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need you to save me because I can't do it on my own. And if you do that and throw yourself on his mercy, these will be your words that you will hear. Truly, I say to you, you will be with me in Friends, these are good words, and these are true words, and they're for you, but they're also for those out there. Death is going to come knocking. At an inopportune time. And they will have to give an account. What have you done with Christ? My friends, there's a gospel imperative for those of you who are in Christ. We are to be a lighthouse, shining out and calling out Jesus is the way. He's the truth and the life. So my encouragement is not to only receive Christ as your own but to give Christ away to those who are perishing. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray.